Welcome to this presentation of First Baptist Church Logue. We're glad to have you joining us today. Our mission at FBC Logue is to bring glory to God by being disciple makers. For that purpose, we present the following resource that it may be a blessing. All right, grab a Bible and turn to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12, and in case you use one of our pew Bibles, you can find that on page 9. We are in our study through the second part of Genesis, which is showing us the beginning of the history of the people of Israel, and also how God is working to bring about the redemption of His people through them. And this morning we're going to see an example of God's commitment to accomplishing His plan as we get a preview of what God is going to do for His people in the big picture. And so we're in Genesis chapter 12, and we're going to begin reading this morning in verse 10. It says, Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, that my life may be spared for your sake. And so last week, the Lord spoke to Abram and called him to leave basically everything he had ever known behind to go to a land that the Lord would show him. And God promised to bless him, to make him into a great nation, and to make his his name great so that he would ultimately be a blessing to all the families in the earth. And we saw that Abram responded in obedient faith, and he traveled to the land of Canaan, which the Lord then promised to give to Abram's descendants, although where those descendants are going to come from uh, still remains to be seen. And so, as we pick up here in verse 10, uh, at some point a severe famine hits the land. There's a long drought until it gets to the point where there's no food available anywhere. And so Abram decides to go further down south into Egypt, where we assume that there was food at this point. And his plan is for them to sojourn, to, to live there in Egypt for a time until the famine is over and they can go back. But in verse 11, just before they enter Egypt, it occurs to Abram that they have a problem. And the problem is Sarai. It's a good problem, but it's a problem nevertheless. And the problem is that Sarai is a beautiful woman. So we saw last week that Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran, and it's been a little while since then. And we're going to find out later on in the story that Sarai is about 10 years younger than Abram. Uh, But what this means is that even in her mid to late 60s, Sarai still has it going on. And so tip your hat to Abram. And the reason that this is a problem is because Abram is concerned that when they get to Egypt, the Egyptians are going to see Sarai And they're going to want her for themselves. And so they're going to kill him so that they can have her for themselves. Now, we we don't know why Abram has this concern. He's been living in the land of Canaan 
this whole time, and we know that the people there are exceedingly wicked. But nothing like this has, has apparently taken place uh, through this time. So it's not clear why he is paranoid that the Egyptians would do this. Uh, it's possible that they may have had a reputation for stuff like this that we're simply unaware of today. Or this may just be a, a case of unrealistic anxiety on Abram's part. But whatever the reason, Abram tells Sarai to tell the Egyptians that she is his sister instead of his wife. And, and the, the idea is that instead of a threat uh, it's as, of competition as her husband, the Egyptians will see Abram as, as a potential ally to recruit for themselves. The Egyptians will treat him well because of her and attempt to gain Abram's favor. Now, in the most technical sense, this isn't exactly a lie, because we'll find out in chapter 20 that Sarai is actually Abram's half-sister. They both share the same father. But at the end of the day, this is a lie, right? Because it's not the whole truth, and it's intended to mislead the people who are around them. And not only that, but it seems entirely unnecessary, because we saw last week that the Lord has promised to protect uh, Abram, to bless those who bless him, and to curse anyone who dishonors him. And that would seem to imply that God will protect you from people who want to kill you and take your wife. Right? So this, this seems like more than what Abram needs to do. But in this moment, he is overcome with fear, and so he chooses to act out of his own wisdom instead of trusting in the Lord. And I also have to say that I'm not following Abram's thought process here. Uh, this, this, doesn't, this plan doesn't make sense to me, and I don't understand what the end game is. Right, Abram's convinced that they need to go down to Egypt, and he's also convinced that when the Egyptians see Sarai, they're going to want her for themselves and kill him. So he tells her to pretend to be his sister. Right, but that doesn't change the fact that they're still going to want her for themselves. And so even if she's pretending to be his sister, if the Egyptians choose to pursue Sarai, then what? It seems to me that Abram is looking at this situation in a way that he can either lose his life or lose his wife, but, but either way, this is not going to work out well. And what does he plan to do then? It, it may be that he doesn't have a plan. It may be that he's just trying to survive the famine for right now, and we will figure out what to do next whenever we get to that point. But whatever he's thinking or not thinking, Abram and Sarai go down into Egypt with this plan in place, and we'll see what happens next as we pick up again in verse 14. It says, When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. And so picking up in verse 14, sure enough, when Abram and Sarai enter Egypt, the, the Egyptians can't help but notice Sarai. It says that they, they saw that she was very beautiful. And specifically, the princes or the officials of Pharaoh, who is the ruler over Egypt, uh, they tell him about her. They say, hey, Pharaoh, we saw something that you might be interested in. And, and so uh, we fast forward however long, and at the end of verse 15, Sarai ends up being taken into Pharaoh's house, which is to say that she joins his harem. Now, if you remember all the way back to our study through Esther uh, a few years ago, then you will remember that the king's harem 
was a group of women who were reserved for the king, or in this case, the pharaoh, and they lived inside the palace, and their whole, the point of their existence is to look pretty and to be available whenever the king, or in this case, pharaoh, desires their company. So from Sarai's perspective, this is probably not what she thought she was signing up for when she agreed to pretend to be Abram's sister. Nevertheless, this is where we are. At the same time, we see in verse 16 that Pharaoh dealt well with Abram for Sarai's sake. He gives Abram sheep and oxen and camels and donkeys and servants. And so on the one hand, Abram was right. Things are going well for him because of Sarai. Uh, He's become wealthy. But his prosperity has come at a high price. The Lord has promised to make a great nation from Abram. But that's going to be considerably more difficult because his wife is now trapped inside of Pharaoh's harem. She belongs to him now. So Abram has gotten himself in over his head, and and he's in a situation where he needs some divine intervention to get back out of it. Fortunately, the Lord is going to intervene, as we'll see when we pick up again in verse 17. It says, But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and lot with him into the Negev. So Sarai has been taken into Pharaoh's house. She can't leave, and Abram has no way of getting her out. Uh, And so beyond the personal angst at the mess that they've gotten themselves into, uh, this puts the Lord's plan to make a great nation that blesses the rest of the world through Abram in jeopardy. But the Lord is not going to allow his plan to be thwarted. And so as we pick up in in verse 17, he responds to the situation by bringing great plagues on Pharaoh and those in his household. Now, the text doesn't say exactly what these plagues were. There have been all kinds of suggestions over the years. Uh, But in some variety of ways, things begin to go very badly for Pharaoh and those who are with him. And consistent with God's purpose... Pharaoh comes to understand that these things are happening because of Sarai. And and he he realizes that it's actually because she is Abram's wife. He has taken a woman who is rightfully married to someone else. And again, we don't know how Pharaoh comes to understand this. It could be that the Lord speaks to him in in the way that he does in other situations in the Bible. Or, Or it could be that just from his pagan background... He assumes that whatever the last thing he did must be the reason for all this misfortune. As he thinks about it, that would have been bringing Sarai into his house. But but however it happens, uh, Pharaoh recognizes uh, that this misfortune is, is happening because of Sarai. He gets the message. And so in verse 18, Pharaoh summons Abram to the palace. And, and I love how he reacts. He's like, hey man, what is wrong with you? I, we didn't need all this. Why didn't you just tell me she was your wife in the first place? And and we could have avoided this entire episode. You act like I was going to kill you or something, right? And so from from Pharaoh's response, it certainly makes it seem as though Abram's fear has been unwarranted. And again, this whole episode could have easily been avoided. 
But then he gives Sarai back to Abram and orders them to leave Egypt with all of the possessions that they have acquired since they arrived. So they leave Egypt and go back up into the Negev desert, which is taking them back towards the land of Canaan. And Lot goes with them. Uh, and we can assume that the famine is over now, or at the very least, Abram has enough to survive until the, the famine is over. And I know that it may seem odd for you to the story to end in verse 1 of a new chapter, uh, but we know sometimes the chapter and verse numbers are wonky, and it seems to me that the story ends uh, in verse 1 of chapter 13. So by God's grace, Abram has averted disaster. Nevertheless, the consequences of a bad decision can continue to follow us and, and cause further difficulties in the future. And I think as we continue to move forward in the story, we're going to see ways that Abram's choice here uh, continue to affect things uh, as we go. So stay tuned. But in our passage this morning, Abram decides to uh, go down to Egypt to escape from a famine, and he ends up needing to escape from the consequences of his foolish decision to pretend that Sarai is his sister instead of his wife. Uh, but the Lord is faithful, as he always is, and so he provides for his people in, in just the exact same way that he promised he would. And as we consider the meaning of this story for our lives today, uh, I think we could look at it on a couple of levels. And so for one, this, this whole story is a perfect illustration of one of the most popular passages in the Bible. Right, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 tells us, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. Now notice it says, don't, not, not, don't use your understanding at all, but don't lean on your own understanding. In other words, don't allow your limited human understanding to influence you away from what God has told you. Right, this is exactly where Abram fumbles. Right, the Lord has promised to bless and protect him, so he should have been confident that, that this God who has spoken to him and appeared to him and led him into this new land uh, would have been able and, and willing to cause his enemies to live at peace with him or to protect him if they did try to harm him. Right, he should have strolled right into town and said, Hello, everybody. My name is Abram, and as you can see, this is my beautiful wife, Sarai. But instead, he allows his own perception to overwhelm him with fear, and he tries to rely on his own wisdom to handle it, which actually ends up putting him in a situation uh, that, where he is impossible to get himself out of. And of course, it's easy for us to see this in Abram, right? But I think if we're honest, we would have to admit that we struggle with these things Two, right? How many times have we held back from doing something that God calls us to do out of fear? Whether that's fear of failure or fear of rejection, fear of the consequences that may come if we obey. How many times have, have we done something God calls us not to do? Because deep down we're convinced that doing things our way will lead us into the fullness of joy and satisfaction in life, that, that our way of doing things will be better. I'm afraid that, that we're a lot more like Abram than we'd like to admit. Friends, when we're in a situation where what God has said in his word 
and what we perceive, our, our perception of reality, come into conflict, we should always go with what God has said. Always. And, and it's hard for us to do this because we instinctively rely on our own senses. Right? But the fact is that our hearts are deceptive. Right? We do not see the whole picture. And even what we do see is often inaccurate, or at least not entirely accurate. And so, no matter what it looks like or how things might seem to us, if God has said it, we should believe it. If God has called us to do it, then we should obey. If God has given us a promise, we should trust it and follow him wherever he leads us. This story should have been encouraging to the original Israelite readers who received it, as they're going to face their own share of situations where what God has told them and their perception of a situation come into conflict, and it should encourage us in our own lives as well. But if we want to go a step beyond that, we can also look at this on the the theological macro level. And so in our our discipleship class right now on interpreting the Bible, we've, we've talked a few times about the concept of typology, which simply means that the way that God works in the past provides a framework for how he's going to work in the future through the Messiah, that the people and places and events in the Old Testament point forward to what God is ultimately going to do through Jesus. And if we take a brief review of the story, we see that God's people have gone down to Egypt because of a famine. They've gone down because of a famine where they find themselves stuck and pinned down by Pharaoh. So the Lord sends plagues until Pharaoh lets them go, and they head back to the promised land with more possessions than they came with. If that plot line sounds familiar, it's because it should. It mirrors almost exactly what what these original Israelite readers would have just experienced as God led them out of Egypt in the Exodus and into the promised land. When we transition from Genesis to Exodus, God's people have once again gone into Egypt because of a famine, where eventually they are taken and held captive by Pharaoh until the Lord sends Moses to inflict plagues, and then he sends them out of Egypt with tons of treasure. And it's all right there. God delivered his people like this in the past, and he will deliver them that way again. Now, of course, as we keep reading through the Old Testament, the Israelites are consistently unfaithful, and so the Lord ultimately sends them into exile in judgment. And while the physical location of the exiles is Babylon and Assyria, the prophets frequently frame the exiles as God sending his people back into Egypt. And the prophets, as they look forward, they view God's future salvation as a new and greater exodus where God is going to save his people yet again. So then we pick up with the New Testament in Matthew chapter 2. And lo and behold, Jesus and his family are threatened by an existential crisis of their own. In this case, it's not a famine, but it's King Herod trying to kill them. And so Joseph and Mary need to take Jesus and flee to safety, and they could go north, south, east, or west. But where does the angel tell them to go? Egypt. So that God's people go down to Egypt, and they sojourn there until Herod dies, and then God calls them to come back to the promised land. And Matthew reveals that this is in fulfillment of Hosea 11.1, where the Lord says, Out of Egypt I called my son. In other words, God leading his people out of Egypt in the Exodus was foreshadowing the greater deliverance that he would provide through the Messiah 
by setting his people free from their slavery to sin and death. And Jesus is that Messiah. And so as you go on to read the Gospels, you see that in his own life, Jesus retraces the steps of Israel throughout their history, which begins with a journey into Egypt. And so when you look at it from that level, what we have here in these 10 verses is the foreshadowing of the foreshadowing. In the big picture, this story is is a microcosm. It is a a miniature representation of what God is going to do across the rest of the Bible to save his people through Jesus. For all of the ways that we have not believed God and have rebelled against him in our sin, Jesus came and took the punishment that we deserve to receive for us so that we can be forgiven of our sin and reconciled to God by turning from our sin in repentance and trusting only in what Jesus has done uh, through his life, death, and resurrection to save us. Once again, it's not about us trying to come up with a solution on our own like Abram does. We simply have to trust what the Lord has done for us through Jesus. And if you think about it, the, the gospel should really reinforce our trust in the scriptures all the more. A God who would go that far to save us from our own foolish wickedness is a God who is not going to lead us astray. He's going to tell us the truth, and he's going to lead us in the right direction every time. And so as we read God's word this morning, may we trust in the Lord who has saved us with all of our hearts and follow him in confident obedience. Let's pray together. Father, as always, we are thankful for your word. And Lord, as we read this story of Abram, we are forced to recognize how often what you have told us in your word and what we perceive in a particular situation seem to be in conflict. And Lord, as we have read this example in in Abram, I pray uh, that you would give us confidence in your word. Lord, that we would believe your word in all things and that we would seek to be obedient to it in every way. Lord, as we think about the big picture of the Bible and where this story is going and what you will accomplish for us through Jesus, we pray that we would would believe that gospel, Father, that we would all be reconciled to you through faith in Jesus, and that in turn that would give us even greater confidence in what you've told us in your word so that we can live our lives faithfully every single day in response to your grace. So Lord, as we take time to respond now, I ask that your spirit would lead us uh, to respond in line with your word. Father, we love you and we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.